Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining me here on the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm honored that you're here. On this episode, we're pulling an interview out of the archives that was done with Walter Marks. He wrote a song that you will hear sung around this house all the time. I sing it. My wife sings it. I'm talking about his song, I've Gotta Be Me. Songwriter Walter Marks has written songs recorded by Sammy Davis Jr., Lorna Luft, Liza Minnelli, Steve Lawrence, The Temptations, Tony Bennett, Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand, Ella Fitzgerald, Little Anthony and the Imperials, and others. He's also a playwright and a novelist. He has written three books in the thriller mystery genre. This interview was broadcast on FM radio back in 2017, I believe, and I hope you enjoy. Let me know what you think. We got a comment from a Daniel Regoza. He says, Walter Marks, cool name. Well, there is a story behind that name. He's with us on the show today. He's a novelist, a songwriter, a playwright. Welcome, Walter Marks. Well, very nice to talk to you. I'm calling you from, I'm talking to you from New York, where I'm sitting in my studio doing half music and half fiction writing. So you're calling from New York, New York? Yep, I live next to Carnegie Hall and a block from Donald Trump's tower. So our neighborhood is pretty crazy. Who's Donald Trump? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people are asking that question. Anyway, we have uh, traffic problems, tourist problems, and then, of course, Carnegie Hall has its own crowds. This is now called Billionaire's Row because they're putting up all these high-rise apartment buildings, which are actually being bought by foreign foreign business people who park their money here. I see. So it's getting to look like Dubai. Really? Full of high towers, yeah. It's, I live in a rent-controlled apartment in the middle of all this nonsense. Is it exciting living in New York City? Well, I'm a native New Yorker, so I'm kind of used to it. It is exciting, and it's getting, but it's getting more and more difficult to to live here because it's noisy and crowded. I mean, it has everything that I that I love: music, theater, art, museums, and so forth. But I also have a, a little place out in East Hampton, which is it's a change of venue for me, which is great because it's really quiet out there. Many people know you as a songwriter, but as we mentioned at the top, you're a writer of fiction, novelist, playwright. You've done a lot of things from the creative side of life. I'm in mystery fiction, and my wife keeps saying, you could write one, you could write one. So I said, well, I, I really can't do that. Yes, you can. Just, just, just try it. So I tried it, and it's turned out to be a lot of fun. Last year, I I hurt my knee while jogging, so I had surgery. So I had a lot of time sitting around with nothing to do. So I was doing a lot of writing. My my books are mainly 
a series based on a New York detective called Jericho. And Jericho was a former NYPD homicide cop who got burned out in Manhattan and decided to join the force out in East Hampton, Long Island, looking for a much calmer way of life. It is calmer, and he's kind of a fish out of water in East Hampton, but there's enough murders out there to keep him and the readers busy. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, it's uh, it's Walter Marks, Amazon.com. People seem to enjoy my books. Has the reason that you are a writer changed through the years? Well, not really. I mean, writing is creative. It's a creative activity, whether you you do a script or whether you do fiction. The process is really, I mean, it takes different skill sets, which uh, I'm fortunate enough to have, but it's always been a life-sustaining thing for me, and I've been writing since, you know, since college. It uh, keeps you going. As you get older, you got to keep your mind active. So I'm keeping it active by writing mysteries, which is really mind-twisting. So you started writing in college, but did creativity show up at an earlier age in any way? Yes. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I, I was very interested in drawing and painting. And my parents sent me to art school at the Museum of Modern Art. And then I went to a high school here in Manhattan called the High School of Music and Art, which is a regular academic high school with three extra hours a day. Uh, devoted to music or art, and I got in as an art student. So up until college, I was just fooling around on the piano, but mostly doing uh, painting and uh, drawing. But in college, they had uh, they had show uh, musical musicals that the students wrote. So I got into writing uh, songwriting. And then I was fortunate when I got out of college to meet two very important songwriters who were helpful to me. They were kind of mentors, except we didn't really have mentors in those days. But one was Oscar Hammerstein, and I got a job as his gopher, uh, which means you go for coffee and you go for cigarettes, on a show called Flower Drum Song. So I learned a lot about just going out of town with a show and seeing how, how it works. And then I was fortunate uh, to, to meet a wonderful songwriter called Johnny Mercer. Wow. He was a real mentor to me and a very, very inspiration about showing me the craft of lyric writing. So Oscar Hammerstein, what was the man himself like? Very reserved, very hard to get to know. He was very tall. He kind of... <laughs> looked like taller than anybody else. He was friendly, but not really outgoing. And also remember, I was a kid. You know, I was like 17. So I didn't really get to know him in, in a sense because I was just running errands. Mainly, I, I sat off on the side and listened to him speak to uh, Richard Rogers and the director of the show, who was Gene Kelly. And the book writer was uh, Joe Fields. These were really giants to me, and I wouldn't have dared to really get to try to be pals with them. Well, you mentioned that Johnny Mercer, the great Johnny Mercer, was like a mentor to you. I'm in the state of Georgia, 
on this end, and he was from Georgia. Yes, he was from Savannah. Very important songwriter. And has shown up in your life again with this My Shining Hour. Yes, I've always loved his work, and when I was younger, we once had a conversation, and he said to me, you know, with all the success I've had, the, the biggest frustration I've had is that I've never really had a big smash Broadway show. Like my contemporaries, Oscar Hammerstein, Ira Gershwin, Yip Harburg, said, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like I'm as good as they are, but I've just never been able to get the right show on Broadway, which is true. He never had a big hit. I guess Lil Abner was the, the biggest hit, which was hardly prestigious. And I said, well, I, Johnny, I, I, don't, I don't understand that either. I mean, your, your, your songs are really theatrical. I mean, they're characters singing about themselves and all about life. And then I said, look, here's an opening of a show. Curtain goes up. Scene is a bar. Bartender's polishing glasses. Guy walks in, looks at the clock and says, it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, that really does sound in the opening of a show. So I thought of that, and I was telling that story about 40 years later to his publisher up at Warner Chapel. The publisher said, well, why don't you write that show? And I said, you know, as a tribute to him, I'd like to write a show in which I take uh, so many of his great songs and put them together, not as a review, but as a real book show, to write a story where these things all become part of a dramatic piece. So I said, but yeah, but what about all the rights? And, and he said, well, well, Warner Chapel has most of the rights. And it won't be a problem because people want, publishers want their songs in Broadway shows. So, so I did it. It's just a show called My Shining Hour, which is option for Broadway. As I think I mentioned to you, it's hard to get shows on Broadway, but it's very promising. And it's really a labor of love because it's a, it was his dream always to have a hit show on Broadway, so maybe I can make it come true for him. What did Johnny Mercer teach you? Well, he taught me that lyrics are craft, that there are certain rules about rhyming and about singability and letting the music guide you. I mean, I do my own music, but it's still, it's, it's a wedding. And he said, you know, just look, look at the great lyricists and you'll see that they're, they read really well on paper, even though they're sung. And then he said, just be personal. Just write things that you feel. If you do that, you'll always be on solid footing. So I tried to do that. And also to learn from the people of his era. Lyric writing is very different today. I mean, since since the Beatles and rock and roll, uh, rhyming is not as precise as it used to be. And they don't really care about rhymes as much as he did in his contemporaries. So I, I'm kind of I'm making myself still do that, still make careful rhymes and make sure that my, that my songs scan with the music. Have there been particular songs that 
have inspired you through the years or that you use as a benchmark by anybody, not just Johnny Mercer? Yes. I mean, there are so many songs of, in what is now called a Great American Songbook that it's hard to just pick out one. I, I would say musically, the music of Jerome Kern just kind of blows me away. His, his songs are, the melodies are, nobody's been able to write melodies like him. And if I were to take one one score without any doubt, it would be Porgy and Beth. I think that's a, almost the perfect union of words and music and passion and theatricality. I mean, here in my uh, studio, I'm looking up at a framed portrait by Hirschfeld, you know, who did all those wonderful drawings in the New York Times. And I have one of uh, George Gershwin at the piano and his brother Ira smoking a cigar. And it's a constant inspiration to me. We're talking with legendary songwriter Walter Marks. What does it feel like to write a song? Well, that's a hard question to answer. It's a, it's a good it's a good question. What I would say is that when you're writing a song and it's going well, you feel completely in control of what's going on. And if you think about it, how, how many times in your life are you completely in control of what's happening? Very rarely, usually there are all kinds of outside forces on you, either personal or financial or political. But when you're writing a song and it's and you're in the middle of it and it seems to be happening in a way that you don't really understand, it's almost some cosmic thing that's going on. And for those moments, the sense of being empowered by something you, that that's beyond you is, is very palpable. Something that I noticed, the name of your song company, Jonah Music, and also your character, Jericho, both names from the Bible. Was that just a coincidence, or is there anything behind that? Just a coincidence. Jericho was named after a town in Long Island. Jonah was named after Jonah Salk, the uh, great uh, doctor, developer of the Salk vaccine. So, no, not, not at all biblical. Okay. Your most famous song, It's Gotta Be, I've Gotta Be Me. Yes. There was a chef that I used to work with, and he would be walking through the kitchen, and I would hear him singing that. I've gotta be me, I've gotta be me. <laughs> and, of course, in addition to the musical that it's from, it's been recorded by a lot of people. It was yeah. in the movie Money Pit, for example. Yes, it was. Why do you think that so many people identify with that song so much? Well, I think because of what the title says, what you're saying, what the song is saying, you've got to be true to yourself, which is everybody wants to feel that way. They don't want to be told who to be or, or why they should do something. They want to be individual. And... You know, the song itself has under, undergone a sort of cultural, it's gone through different cultural periods in, in our country. It was in the late 
60s that this song was written, and it was actually not the A side of, of the recordings that Sammy Davis did. It was the B side. In those days, I had two sides to a record. And a disc jockey in San Francisco turned it over and started playing it, and it really caught on. And at that time, the song kind of resonated with the Black Power movement, which was going on at the time. And then we kind of moved into the 70s, which is often called the Me Generation. So that would seem to be an anthem for that type of thinking. And then in the 80s, it kind of became a funny song. People were doing all kinds of funny things with it. I think there was one television show where some guy was changing from his underwear into a into a woman's dress and singing I've Gotta Be Me and people were kind of having fun with it. Then it was also being used from time to time in commercials, television commercials, radio commercials. And then recently it, it was sung by Ryan Tedder, who's a, a teenage idol, did it very, very differently for, it was a... Um, I think it was a, a peer company, I don't remember now. It always seems to bring young people discover it, and they say, oh, that's something that resonates with me. So I think basically it's an individuality in one, one form or another that resonates with people. How many versions of that song do you think there are? I can't really count them, but I would see there's probably about... 40 altogether. Ones that come to mind are Sammy Davis, Tony Bennett, The Temptations, Ella Fitzgerald, Lorna Lust, uh, of course, Steve Lawrence, many, many more that I can't think of. Now, I'd have to look up the rest, but surely a lot, and it's certainly uh, paid a lot of rent for me through the years. <laughs> so who did the best version of I've Gotta Be Me? I would say probably Sammy Davis, the, the original one. The funniest usage of it, you know, I get these statements for movies, like you said, it was in The Money Pit, and every year it, it shows up in a movie called The Deer Hunter, which you may remember many, many years. It was about, about the Vietnam War. I couldn't figure out where it was used, and finally I said, I'm going to look at this movie and see where they use it. Well, all that happens is that before the, there's three veterans, and before they go deer hunting, they get in a car, and they're drunk, and they're driving up the mountainside, and and they go, I can't be me, like a bunch of drunks. <laughs> you, can't even, you can't even make out the song, uh, and it's very short. But apparently they had to pay for that usage, uh, even though it's it's hardly there at all, but it really made me laugh. There have been so many iconic singers and groups that have recorded your music, from Sammy Davis, Tony Bennett, Michael Jackson, the great Ella Fitzgerald, The Temptations, Little Anthony and the Imperials. Has there been anybody who recorded something that you wrote that you were just blown away by the idea? Let me see. There was a, 
a song that I wrote called The Singer, which was recorded by Barbara Streisand. But it was never released. It was going to be the, the title song of her album. But just before they released it, they got a new A&R guy at Columbia, I guess it was, and they decided that she should do more contemporary stuff. Uh, it was in the 70s. And so they they didn't release it. And I didn't hear it till much later when she put it out in a, in a collection of unreleased songs, and it did really blow me away. So you didn't get to hear it until all those years later? Yeah, I was very disappointed because I thought, oh boy, it's the title song of, of Barbara Streisand's album, and this is going to be really great, and it, it was canned at the last minute. So I never got to hear it. So it was probably 30 years later when I heard it for the first time, and I thought it was quite wonderful. How did Barbara Streisand or the producer, whoever it was that was associated with her, how did they come to find that song? Well, in those days, music publishers were essentially song pluggers. I mean, if, if somebody published your song, they knew people, A&R people in the record companies were the, the people who chose what singer sh- should sing what song. So they used to, you know, send them demonstration records and or sometimes I'd go and play it live if it was in New York. And it was just in that in that case of uh, the case of the song called The Singer, I just made a little piano and, and voice demo record myself and gave it to the publisher Fred Allard, who's not here anymore and he loved it said, I'm sending it over to Barbara Streisand. Who knows what will happen? So, but that's what they did. publishers did all the time then. That was before that there were really singer-songwriters. They were songwriters, then they were singers. And so they were separate. And then that changed when singers began to write their own songs. We're talking with writer and songwriter Walter Marks. Do you feel a kinship with other songwriters? Well, not so much today. I feel a kinship artistically, if that's what you mean. Oh, yes, very much so. But I, I'm not part of a, of a songwriting community. I just I listen to all great songs and, and love all kinds of music. My main interest musically is, is jazz, and so I listen to a lot of that. And jazz kind of uh, has a discipline that I love, and most of my work is kind of jazzy. Do you write every day? Yes. I I do write every day, but I don't have a set schedule. I kind of write when I want to write, but I want to write every day, so I end up writing. I try not to write too much at night because it keeps me up all night. (laughs) If I start getting involved with something I'm doing, I can't sleep. But I do write every day. It's very nourishing. Why would you say it's nourishing? What is it about the process? Well, you know, creativity is it has its is its own reward. If when you're being creative, you are really happy. You have a sense of who you are, you have a connection to the world, and it's it's very sustaining. It and if you can do it, I I've never really worked for anybody. I've never 
gotten a salary. I've always been sort of freelance, and and uh, and everything I've done has been on spec. So I'm kind of used to doing what I do. It's basically, you know, if you can do what you love every day, you're you're way ahead of the game. That's true. Very true. What is the best thing about being Walter Marks? Well, I you know I've lived a long time, and I've I've the best thing about being me is that I have been me. I have been able to be true to myself, and I've been very, very, very fortunate in my life. I have a wonderful wife. I have a fulfilling career. I'm completely interested in the process of what I'm doing. I'm not very goal-oriented anymore. When I was younger, I, I wanted to achieve certain things and to get a certain status, but I'm very, very satisfied with where I am now in my life. And I'm reasonably healthy, I'm physically active, I enjoy every day, and uh, lucky to be here. You mentioned that your wife is also a creative person. That's correct. What is it like being married to a fellow artist? Well, she's a teacher and a documentary filmmaker. She teaches screenwriting and documentary filmmaking at a school as well, School of Visual Arts, which is here in New York. She's a very different schedule than I because she's got nine o'clock classes and I usually sleep late. But we have a very healthy relationship. I mean, she's, as far as fiction is concerned, she she teaches writing. So she's my first editor whenever I write book, I give it to her, and she feels very free to be critical constructively, of course, but I take what she says very seriously. She's very smart. So that works out very well. You have to have a heavy relation, a very strong relationship for you to be able to criticize each other's work, but we both do it with a good spirit, and it can be a very helpful thing. I kind of look at us like a creative team, even though we do very different things. When I, when I see some of her film footage, I'll say, well, this works and this doesn't work, and she will nod, and some, sometimes she'll do what she wants, and sometimes she'll do what I want, and same as vice versa. So very lucky that it's worked out that way. You mentioned kind of in passing that you were jogging. A lot of people do different things in order to get inspiration going. For a lot of people, it's a strong cup of coffee. For some people, it's a little exercise. Is there anything that you do to get in the mood or to get in the right mind frame to write? Well, not really. I don't need inspiration per se. You know when I get inspired? When I sit down to write. I mean, I'm, I'm taking in life all the time when I'm either jogging or going for a walk or thinking or reading or watching films. A lot of stuff is seeping into my conscious or subconscious. But really, it's when I sit down in front of the computer or in front of the synthesizer, if I'm doing music, uh, it's like I'm throwing a switch. Okay, I'm working. Now, if I look at a blank piece of paper, the one thing I know now after years is that in an hour, something's going to be on that piece of paper. So... I know a lot of people talk about writer's inspiration, 
but it seems, in my case, it's more perspiration than inspiration. This is very open-ended, but for anyone who's listening in to our interview, what would you say to them? Well, that that's pretty open-ended. I would say the kind of advice that, that is given all the time, has been given through the ages, is good because it's always true. And the, the truest thing anybody can say is live each day as fully as possible. You don't know how long you have. My last question. Who is Walter Marks? Um, I don't think that any person can answer that question about themselves. As a person, you're constantly striving to find out the answer to that. And also, if you have a healthy attitude, you're evolving. And who you are is constantly changing. You develop a set of values of what's right and what's wrong and, and being true to yourself. But I would seriously doubt, I would very be very surprised if any really together person could give, give an answer to that. The best uh, answer I could give is, I'm working on it. <laughs> well spoken. Thank you. Well, before we leave, I have a small request. Would you sing a line from I've Gotta Be Me? Sure. <laughs> Great. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. I think that's true of all relationships. And that's what makes it a great song. Thank you. I'm glad, to, glad you think so. Well, sir, it's been an honor to talk to you. Well, it's been an honor to talk to you, and I've really enjoyed this, and you've, you've given me food for thought about myself, and I've learned a lot. I don't talk about myself very much, so this is fairly unique for me, but thank you for the opportunity. You're very well spoken. Thank you. If you're ever in Atlanta, Georgia, don't hesitate to knock on my door. <laughs> well, I certainly won't. Uh, we talk from time to time about working at the Alliance, so if I get down there, I know where to. I know who to call. Absolutely. And I won't be Ghostbusters. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, have a uh, wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things, improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.